Welcome, welcome, one and all, to Books and Beer Review, a drinking podcast with a book reading problem. This is our booze-soaked twist on the classic book club, where we, your hosts, take it in turn to report on a recently read piece of literature. We do the legwork so you don't have to. But before we get to any of that, we must review the brew, bicker about the liquor, and wine, wine about the wine. So please sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Books and Beer Review. This is Kevin, as always, and with me as always are my two good buddies, Craig and Pat. Fellas, say hello. 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 Very good. All right, we're going to start with the guy. We're going to start with Froggy. You obviously got your speaking voice ready to go, Seamus. Uh, So let's hear about what you're drinking first tonight. Today I, I went with the classic, a nice tall glass of Guinness. Oh, lovely day. Probably had it before on this program, but yes, I also absolutely love Guinness. It's probably one of my top three to five beers. I thought you were going to say I went with a classic water. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was going that direction too. Nothing more classic than water. You know, I don't uh, profess to be a huge fan of Guinness. But when I finally do get my basement bar, I definitely want to want to get one of those old timey ad campaign posters of Guinness, like the toucan. Oh, with, with the toucan, the, yeah. <laughs> the toucan or the seal. Yeah, I think there's something like the 50s or 60s, but there's Guinness, not extra foreign style and whatnot. Yep, yep. I want one of those. Uh, cool, cool. Craig, what do you got? So I was planning on us recording a little bit later and an opportunity arose. So I had just made a hot chocolate uh, whenever I was hopping on and I was like, well, shit, why am I going to put in hot chocolate? But I have some Bailey's. So I'm having a Bailey's espresso cream and uh, some what Swiss mix chocolate milk. Uh, I had some of the Bailey's espresso cream beforehand. I'm a big fan of just traditional Bailey's. Um, so the espresso cream, in my opinion, tastes like shit compared to the regular Bailey's. But for Ooh, harsh. People, yeah, but for people that like Bailey's, uh, I mean, y- you mix it in, right? It's mixed in with my hot chocolate, so it tastes great because there's a pound of sugar in this. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I usually don't like really sugary drinks for uh, alcohol, but hey, this worked out. It's a cold day outside. There's still snow on the ground at my house, so it's Bailey's drinking weather. Oh, that's, that's not a bad plan. I was up for my money when I do hot chocolate and I, I decided to Irish it up a bit. Uh, I usually do like a peppermint schnapps or something. Yeah, whenever I go um, see we, lights at the zoo, I almost always yeah. get a Bailey's and hot chocolate. Boozy hot chocolate for the win. For us, it's the botanical gardens. We always go see the lights at the botanical gardens. I don't think I've ever done Lights at the Zoo. Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty much the same shit, uh, honestly. <laughs> but uh, but there's animals. I mean, they're usually uh, very, very much not doing anything. And it's not the whole zoo, right? So oh, for, for those of you that don't know, uh, this is being recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. We have a world-class zoo here, and uh, it's really awesome. Uh but the lights that they put up for um, this thing, it, it's only like maybe one 
eighth of the zoo so it's not like a oh really or maybe it's a little more than that maybe but what, uh, what, what's it run you to go to that thing how much do they charge to be honest i don't know my wife just says that we're going to go to it every year so and she takes a, care of it yeah it's a tradition um that's fair i have no idea what the botanical gardens cost for the same reason yeah i'm sure it's like 10 or 15 bucks or something like that i know it's not enough for me to grouch over or something i don't get me wrong i enjoy the light show as much as the next person i much rather walk through the light show uh rather than drive a car through it so well mm, i kind of like driving because uh especially well if i'm not driving i like riding along because i definitely want to crack open a couple beers anyway yeah why don't you tell uh, us about what you're drinking yeah speaking of beers speaking of beer okay so i'm i'm scraping the bottom of the barrel of my advent calendar of german beers uh and so today i've got a landenberger weizenbach hell that's what that is uh, is hell in the name yeah yeah i don't think that's how you pronounce it it's probably it is old. it just means light oh yeah i don't remember what hell was in german i remember the devil it was means light <laughs> no i mean like i don't know what like the actual hell oh, oh, let me let me tell you what it means i don't know <laughs> i know that der teufel is the devil yeah but anyway uh that's it's it's a it's just like every other beer I've had from the great nation of Germany. It, it's never bad, but it's it's never really that interesting either. It's just they, they they figured out a long time ago how to make a pretty decent beer. They just stuck to it ever since. Okay, or at least the ones on this advent calendar did. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they kept them all. There was one. There was one IPA in the whole thing. And their IPA game was not all that great, if I'm honest, but I drank it anyway. Um, but yeah, so um, hopefully I'll, I'll finally be off my German kick here maybe in the next couple episodes. Uh, but that's what I've got tonight. Um, oh, but what, what kind I of also, do you got for us? Yeah, for out of Germany and into Mother Russia. Um, so I did something a little different this week. I did not read a, a novel as we are typically want to do. I think I might be the one here breaking the mold, occasionally doing a work of nonfiction. So I've reviewed a newspaper. <laughs> no, it's, it's every bit as interesting as you would expect um, a novel to be. It, in a lot of ways, it reads like a novel because it is a story. It's just a historical one. And so... Um, let me start off with a question. Have either of you ever heard of the Soviet Fox experiment? Nope. Oh, are you talking about the one where they tried to make uh, turn foxes basically docile into more dogs? Like Yes. Oh, correct. Yeah. Okay, then I so, get taught that every year in psychology for what what I what I was really? for. Oh yeah, they talk about it all the time about just like the slow molding um, they used it as a proof for things like operant conditioning and stuff. Right. Well, it was slow in the sense that it was only started about 80 years ago now, I think. Mm -hmm. But of course, in evolutionary time, you know, blink of an eye, how quickly. Mm -hmm. But I, I get ahead of myself. So the name of the book is called How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog. And it was uh, written by Lee Allen uh, Dukatan and uh, Ludmila Trout. And Ludmila is actually significant because she is, um, I don't want to say co-founder because she gets brought in later to the experiment, but she was a big part of running the experiment. And she runs it to this day, as a matter of fact. So um, our story begins in Soviet Russia in the 1930s. Uh, so it starts with this uh, scientist named Dmitry Belayev. 
And this is sort of like when the, the study of genetics was really kind of in its infancy. So we've already had like Darwin's uh, theory of evolution and all that. And it's still like a subject of some debate. And I'll, I'll get to that later. But most uh, legit scientists are kind of on board with evolution. And so uh, Dimitri wants to study d domestication because that's kind of this weird offshoot of evolution that was guided by human hands, you know? Um, and he wants to figure out how exactly is it that dogs, or excuse me, wolves became dogs. Because at that point in time, even then it was widely understood that wolves and dogs shared a common ancestor. So he had this idea um, to take foxes and to start selectively breeding them for tameness. And he picks foxes because apparently foxes and wolves are very closely related genetically. So it's like, it's, you know. It makes sense. Yeah, I guess it might've been better to use wolves, but he picks foxes for another reason. And that's because at this time, this is, so this is Stalin's Russia. And the guy in charge of science of the Soviet Union is, uh, I guess, like the minister of science, if you will. His name is uh, Lysenko. And he's just a total dipshit asshole, <laughs> to put it mildly. So uh, because of sort of revolutionary... It actually says that in the book, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, in so many words that they're, they're, more, um, they're more articulate and diplomatic about it than I am. Uh, but so at this time, I guess because of like the way revolutionary thinking was, there was sort of like this shunning of like classically trained university, university educated scientists. And it's sort of like, no, no, obviously the farmer knows best about how to domesticate crops. So we're going to take some dipshit off the farm and make him the minister of science. Like this guy, I, I don't think he ever spent a day in university. Like I think at best he was like an apprentice in some sort of field having to do with agriculture so he's somehow he's, uh one of those people who i goes uh i do my own research on facebook yes <laughs> yes those but, people. You know, exactly <laughs> well and he kind of bends stalin's ear because he's really pushing this um it's it's a competing theory with evolution that even by this time was largely debunked this is i, I forget what it's called but it was basically the idea of use it or lose it he was telling Stalin, it's like, oh, see, a giraffe has a long neck because it stretched its neck out one day and it made it a little bit longer. And so because it did that, its babies were born with a longer neck and so on and so forth. The idea being that things that you do in this life are somehow things that you can pass on immediately to your offspring, um, which obviously, if you're not super familiar with uh, the idea behind evolution is that over time, uh, there's genetic drift and just random mutations happen. And if they happen to be advantageous for the species in question, they get passed on. So right. Evolution's completely random, whereas whatever you call this is sort of guided. And he was really pushing this, this Lysenko character. Yeah, it's like and selective Stalin, breeding. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, yeah, I suppose, but it's just like it, it wasn't backed up by evidence. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't replicate these theories. And he had all these bonkers ideas about like how he really shunned genetics. He's like, genetics is like a weird pseudoscience and it's propaganda from the West. We can't listen to any of this. And so he had this weird idea about how to increase food yield by taking wheat seeds and freezing them before planting them. Because in his weird screwed up I, you know, mind, this would somehow lead to a greater frost resistance. Um, hmm. Well, that's a way to get them to sprout early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
needless to say, I mean, it, it's weird because this was such a grift and it was obvious he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And he, but he managed to cling on to power for quite a long time. And it was most, mostly through like typical like Soviet style tactics of where like you would intimidate and silence any of your detractors. So everyone was afraid to speak out against the pseudoscience. Now, why do I talk about him? Um, because uh, the experiment that Dmitry Belayev wanted to conduct was very much a study of genetics and he had to find some way to disguise that. If he just told the Soviet government, like, yeah, I wanna take some wolves and see if I can uh, breed them into dogs. They'd be like, that's Western propaganda, comrade. You know, off to the gulags with you. Yeah, so we're gonna domesticate foxes. So yeah, so what he did is he disguised it. He said, uh, what I wanna do is I want to see if I can breed a fox with a more illustrious coat. Um, because at this point in time, one of the biggest exports in the Soviet Union was fox belts. Mm. So he gets permission to take to select a population from a, a local Siberian uh, a fox farm and start his little experiment under the guise that he's trying to find a way to make a better, thicker, fuller, more lavish fox belt. Mm-hmm. That's not what he's doing at all. <clears throat> so right off the bat, ballsy right <laughs> right in, in, in stalin's russia trying to put you get one killed over on the government like yeah that. yeah it's that's that's dangerous stuff but this dude was uh really committed to science and it goes into a bit about him as a person um just being an incredibly like charismatic and intense individual like he had a legitimate love for just the discovery of of experimentation and <clears throat> he had a really hard time um suffering fools um, so he was actually, he was one of the first people to start vocally, um, rebuking, uh, Lysenko, which was like another ballsy move. Um, but he gets, he sort of gets vindicated in the end. Cause eventually I want to say like the fifties or sixties, Lysenko is, is out. You know, okay. His bullshit has pretty much been unmasked. He, he sort of goes away with the death of Stalin. He said like the fifties. So anyway, uh, Dimitri sets up this experiment, uh, Belayev, to start breeding these foxes and he recruits recruits this young graduate student, uh, Lyudmila uh, Trut. I'm just going to call him by the first names because it's easier uh, to help him. Um, and they immediately start uh, forming a plan on how to select for tameness. They have these steps, um, these tests to administer on what would uh, indicate a more suitable fox for uh, domestication. And so it's just things like, does the fox try to bite my hand when I put it in the cage? Does it cower at the back of the cage or does it like apprehensively sniff my hand? Right. And so I think within the first generation, so they take these foxes and they breed them one generation. So within the first generation, they've already got foxes that are more or less indifferent to human beings, Mm. which astonished all of them. They did not think it was going to happen that quickly. And so... um, they continue off these experiments, selecting from that brood now uh, even more uh, tame and docile animals. And they start noticing over the, the corresponding generations other weird traits coming up. So not only were these animals becoming more docile towards humans, but eventually they started exhibiting behavior where they'd actually like seek out humans. Like they prefer the company of a human being over, uh, over another fox. Mm. and, and also they would do fly. these <laughs> they could also fly no um well no so here's the really interesting part um that this is where like a lot of our questions they, about domestication they grew two tails and they started helicoptering <laughs> them around 
And oh, I was going to say, like, it was, some of them were fire types and others mm -hmm. were lightning types. And then they went searching for Sonic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Okay. So one of the questions you might have about dogs and how they're related to wolves that I certainly did um, before hearing about this experiment is how is it that a dog can be related to a wolf and have these just weird traits that don't seem to really serve any purpose in terms of what we did, what we bred dogs for. Like we didn't selectively breed for calico coats or floppy ears or curly tails. That stuff just sort of popped up. But up until this point, no one knew that. Everyone thought that the Paleolithic man must have selected for these traits. And so what uh, Dimitri and Ludmila found out was no, in fact, uh, if you just select for tameness over and over again, these traits start spontaneously showing up in the foxes. Not, mind you, these are not wolves. These are foxes. They're close, but they're not quite the same. And yet the exact same stuff's happening. Right. Ears get floppy, tails curl, coats become spotted. Uh, you know, their, uh, they, they measured their snouts got smaller and rounder. Um, and then later as time progresses, uh, technology gets better. They're able to measure other things like hormonal levels um, and when hormones appear and when they don't. Um, and how much can they pick up on people around them or right. how, how easily is it for them to read signals or signs or understand words or commands from humans? Yes. And like dogs, they get better at that, like way better than their wild. Cause there was always a control group, right? Mm -hmm. So they're always keeping a group. And in fact, there was a, there was a group that they later explicitly bred to be more wild or like more uh, aggressive towards humans. <laughs> so you had like these super foxes that were like just super, nobody wanted to mess with them. <laughs> they were just really aggressive. Like nobody, none of the handlers. Yeah, wanted I think to I've that. seen this movie before. That doesn't end up well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought that was with apes, not with, no, I'm just yeah. Uh, yeah, this is uh, 28 days later, only as foxes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what do they find out through the course of the experiments? Well, the first thing I already told you is that a lot of these secondary traits we associate with domestication come out spontaneously from just selecting for tameness. And this just isn't just in dogs. We see this in cats and even other animals like cows. Like the wild ancestor of cows didn't have spots. You know, think of a cow in your head right now, chances are you're thinking of a Holstein, that white and black spotted cow. That doesn't really happen in nature all that often. It's not, it's typically not conducive to survival to be spotted. Um, certain big cats notwithstanding. Uh, so like I said, yeah, they found differences in the hormone levels, the skeletal structures changed. Um, and as the story progresses, you know, there's this sort of intersection of science and politics too, right? Uh, during the 70s, during this period of what they call the detente, where there's a bit of a softening of the Cold War, it talks about how Belive was actually able to like go to Scotland for a scientific conference and present his findings like openly. And like the Western world had no idea this was going on. And they weren't doing anything like this. People were amazed that they were performing this sort of experiment and getting this sort of result. And you have to oh yeah, this that's point, a... That's a big deal um, right. as far as just helping us understand certain traits and, and even like the secondary traits, being able to have an opportunity to get those out. Because even at this time with genetics, um, there's no way to understand how they popped up. It felt like it was completely random. Yeah. And like the experiment of this length had not been attempted as of yet. I mean, we're going on 35 years at this point in the story. And I think it was around this time 
at some point, I think is legend, it's one kind of one of those apocryphal and legendary kind of stories. Uh, Dmitry Belayev wakes up in the middle of the night and he like a sweat because he had a dream and he composed this like theory in his dream of what he would later, uh, I think he'd call it destabilizing evolution. Um, and the idea behind it was that we didn't necessarily, the first time around with wolves, we didn't necessarily pick these traits ourselves. Um, that we created an environment where for wolves, there was now um, environmental pressure for different traits. Um, so rather than it being really advantageous to be bigger, stronger, faster, more aggressive, have better eyesight, it was now more advantageous. You had a better chance of reproducing if you were docile, if you were curious, if you were inquisitive about humans, because cooperative yes if, if you could get along if you could learn this is later down the evolutionary path but if you could learn to interpret um human you know emotion and directives it's sort of like this sort of a cross-species socialization and so th- that's not the revolutionary part the revolutionary part is that Belive surmises that if this happened to wolves if they more or less domesticate themselves then this might explain how human beings uh went from pseudo wild animals in our paleolithic hunter-gatherer days to the creators of civilization that there might have actually been environmental pressures in our own species that selected for less aggressive males um, because you know women are more attracted to that i guess um and, and that when we're less aggressive we're more cooperative and that is really the key to our success as a species how we we're able to build civilization was the cooperation um and i I'd say to this day, that's probably a bit controversial in some circles, but certainly was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like a radical theory when he first came up with it. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you move away from like Grug hit with rock. Right. <laughs> and, and towards Grug need help with thing. <laughs> exactly. so, I, think, I think a lot of people are just really uncomfortable with the idea of humans domesticating themselves. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand what else you could call what's happening now. I mean, the variety of ailments that people have, I think, is evidence enough of that because people have more issues now than what we've ever known as far as physical issues. And the variety is not getting any smaller. And that's because we're figuring out how to cure people of or how to help them or how so that they don't necessarily pass away or die as our society becomes our society is overall more peaceful than it's ever been yeah uh, we're actually living in an unprecedented era of peace we're due for a world war mm-hmm. uh, sometime in the next 50 years 50 yeah. minutes I, I, <laughs> I, I always laugh whenever people say that because uh people our our ability to be predictive as human beings has shown time and time again to be pretty shitty uh, anyway, uh, whenever you were saying that, it made me actually think of this book. I think I may have even reviewed it on here called Children of Time. And mm-hmm. that was the one where um, it really advanced human species, uh, they send off uh, apes or they send off this virus to this plant planet that's popular right. by different this things. This is the one where they accidentally gave it to spiders or something. Instead right. Of- and mm-hmm. one of the big evolutionary jumps that spiders had was working cooperatively these jumping mm-hmm. spiders head was working cooperatively and i remember them talking about it, and the author kind of made a big deal about it and i'm like oh that's so interesting so you talking to me about it now now that kind of like clicks 
in with me is like why the author made such a big deal about it because it, it is and and that's uh from what you're telling me it sounds like that is a sign of uh, yeah. evolutionary change and just for like some context too around the same time um don't crucify me if I'm, I'm off by a decade or two but around the 60s 70s 80s you had stuff going on like they were finding you know lucy the the australopithecus in Africa, and they were finding Piltdown Man and, uh, and Homo erectus. And then you had people like Jane Goodall and uh, uh, Diane Fossey uh, studying the chimpanzees and gorillas in the wild, respectively. Um, and they were noticing like all these behaviors that were surprisingly human, um, but also just extremely like more violent. Like I, there was this uh, uh, anecdote with Jane Goodall saying that like when I first started studying chimpanzees, I was convinced that human beings were the only animals that uh, that engaged in warfare. Because <laughs> I was very sad and dismayed to find out that I was wrong. That in fact chimpanzees do it every bit as violently, in some case more cruelly uh, than human beings do. So this is, I mean, there's uh, it. It kind of seems obvious that like yeah, wild animals are more vicious than than humans mm. but you know if you're a student of history sometimes that can be hard to believe because we're capable of some pretty horrible things also it's like uh, just like a slight repression of the fight flight response mm-hmm. is what the difference between us and apes pretty much <laughs> well yeah it's just taking that extra second to consider your options yeah like... it's like <laughs> not, now now it takes two seconds for grug to decide to smack bob over the head with a rock whereas before yeah. Grug's grandfather, great great grandfather, took one second to consider that. <laughs> and and one of the interesting things they found out from the, the uh, fox experiment was what is interesting is that it's not necessarily that the, it's not mutation. Your genes don't actually change with domestication. It's though it's a it's a difference in the way that they express themselves. Like they right. turn on and off at different it's points. Eugenics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so like, for example, with the foxes, like the big deal, the big thing, and you'll hear about this dogs too, is that they were, their state of immaturity was prolonged. They acted like fox puppies far, you know, into adulthood. And you see that with modern dogs too. Wolves don't play wild, not adult wolves. But as I, you know, indicated before, my own dogs were down here playing just not a few minutes ago. And human beings are the same way too, right? I'm a 32-year-old man. I will be 32 next uh, week. And I am not above playing with action figures if they're in front of me or, you know, grabbing a stick and pretending it's a sword. I will still do stuff like that occasionally, you know, if no one's around and watching. Um, so that kind of lends credence to this idea of humans domesticating themselves because apes don't do that. I don't, I don't believe. I don't believe adult apes play, but adult humans certainly do. So that's sort of that that prolonged immaturity um, coming back into play. I think so, I read something kind of similar to, along those lines is as people um, went away from hunter-gatherer to like farming and stuff, they had more free time. And basically mm-hmm. the concept of entertaining oneself started to become a thing. And that's part of how society progressed that direction. There's a great move, moment in this movie, if you've ever seen it, called Almost Heroes. It's the last movie Chris Farley ever made. It was him and Matthew Perry. And mm-hmm. their whole shtick is they're trying to beat Lewis and Clark to the, the Pacific. And there's this one point where Matthew Perry, who plays this sort of like upper crust, uh, hoity-toity, dandy, really rich guy who's funding the whole operation. He decides he needs to sort of commiserate and relate to the men he's hired on this expedition. 
And he's like, let's all go around in a circle and talk about what we do in our leisure time. And they all just kind of stare at him blankly. Le- leisure time, you know, when, when you don't have to work and they're all just staring at him. Like, what? Yeah. What do you mean when I don't have to work? <laughs> I do so, want to make a correction to what I said earlier. It was not eugenics. I meant epigenetics. Oh, good. Because like, eugenics. Yeah, that's, that's the other <laughs> It's not the first time that I've gotten the two confused, um, but uh, I don't know, for some reason when I was taught, I was taught that at the same time, but because uh, humans have a lot of, that's uh, something that we discover a lot with how we're exposed, even to like, uh, you could say like right now when this is being recorded, right, we're in the middle of the coronavirus, that a lot of people are experiencing uh, certain epigenetic shifts that have happened and that have been buried in their, you know, their genetic code. And that's responding to this stress and this environment and the shared trauma that a lot of people are going through. Um, and uh, it sounds like that that's the same thing that happens to these foxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be, uh, and it sounds like it's, gosh, if it's going on that long, it may be one of the best research studies for stuff like that. So that's yeah. really cool. That's really cool. I, and it makes sense too, right? Because even getting back to wolves and dogs, you can crossbreed a wolf and a dog, no problem. Mm-hmm. so that 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 would seem to indicate that there hasn't been a whole lot of genetic drift between the two right like their genes are still very much compatible so what else would explain the you know the stark change in behavior between a wolf and a dog and as you said it's epigenetics it's the the way the genes are expressed yes not eugenics yeah <laughs> the select- e- eugenics it's sort of a benign uh pseudoscience in terms of like what it actually means but just the historical context yes. of it yes. makes it sort of a cringy word <laughs> the historical context of the nazis and yeah well I, for another for another discussion it, uh, it, it wasn't just the nazis unfortunately no. um no, I, so I, anyway as far as i know they're the most that are known for it but uh well, they got the idea I, from someone else but we don't have to go into that right now there was like <laughs> sterilization programs and stuff in the u.s you know yeah. there's plenty of blame to throw around uh but anyway back back to our story um back onto like the history side of this thing so fast forward to like uh the 80s um and unfortunately Belayev is diagnosed with a uh, lung cancer um, because he smoked cigarettes constantly every day for his entire life. Um, oh, and the, the Soviet economy uh, being what it was in the 80s, not great. He didn't exactly have access to the best medical care, so they caught it pretty late. Um, I think he dies in 1984. Um, and he gets like a state funeral. Like he was very well regarded within the Soviet Union and pretty well regarded outside as well, because at this point he had managed to kind of get his work out there. But he actually gets like a state funeral and which is sort of a double-edged sword because uh, then they're interviewing his friends and family. So like, well, on the one hand, they accorded him the amount of like respect he deserved. Like all these big wigs showed up and talked. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, all these big wigs who didn't know him showed up and talked and none of us were allowed to say a word. Right. You know, the, the people who actually knew him and cared about him. So it was a very bittersweet thing for a lot of them. And so Ludmila takes over the project at Ernest now. And she'd already been kind of managing it mostly on her own anyway, because Blythe had other responsibilities. Um, but then again, you students of history will be familiar with another thing that happened, which was the dis- dissolution of the Soviet Union and the economic crisis that both preempted it and followed it. Um, 
all of a sudden she's got 700 pseudo domesticated foxes and no money because um, the government's collapsed. There's no money. And I mean, when you're trying to like, you know, just sort of keep some semblance of peace going on when you're transitioning from this, you know, the Soviet Socialist Republic to whatever the hell Russia is now, a federation, I guess. Um, breeding foxes kind of seems like a dumb use of your money. So they, they said like overnight almost, it's like their funding just gets completely cut. Like she didn't have money to pay any of the workers. A lot of them stayed on anyway because they cared about the, the the foxes and the project. And she didn't really have money even to feed the foxes. And so one of the horrible things they had to do is they actually had to start sacrificing these foxes. Um, they would try to pick the ones that were probably like the most wild and the least sociable to basically have them skinned and have their furs sold so that they can buy some food to feed the remaining ones. And this went on to the point where I think they got down to only 100 females and 25 or 50 males. Uh, so again, that was 700 before. And, and it wasn't just that they were willy-nilly skinning these foxes. A lot of them, unfortunately, died from exposure and starvation. There just wasn't enough food. There wasn't money for medical care. You know, uh, if you've got a large population of domesticated animals and you can't afford a vet and uh, a, a disease breaks out, that's going to thin the numbers really quick if you can't afford the vaccinations or whatnot. Uh, and this is, uh, she, she talks about how this is like the hardest point in her life. And a lot of her workers, you know, got like PTSD from this experience. They were traumatized. Cause it was like a little, little Fox Holocaust. <laughs> and yeah. you, you gotta, you gotta understand these foxes aren't like wild animals. Anymore. Yeah. You can't just let them out. out yeah. You can't let them out because they wouldn't make it. Yes, of, of course. But what I'm getting at is from the, the emotional aspect of it. These were more like dogs. Yeah. Like people had emotional attachments to these animals. Um, and just watching them waste away was really hard on them. So I think what she actually ends up doing is she writes um, Scientific America or Scientific American, some publication in the United States. Um, and she, she doesn't even make it a sob story. She's not like, please give us money. She just lays it out there. This is what we've been doing for this is in the 90s now or the early 90s so this is what we've been doing for the last uh what's the difference there 60 years this is what we've been doing for the last 60 years i mean it's more like 50 it doesn't matter um here's what we managed to accomplish here's some pictures of adorable little foxes oh and by the way we have no money and we don't know what we're gonna do <laughs> so it's sort of a little she kind of sneaks there at the end, but she never makes an overt plea for money. But nonetheless, uh, people start writing into the magazine, like, how can I get in touch with this uh, program? I want to give them money. Um, and so the, the experiment is pretty much saved. Um, like, I think some, like one guy donated like $100,000. Wow. Like 19 in 1990s money, so that'd be probably like a quarter million today, <laughs> but it's a, a lot of money regardless. And so that it was kind of saved overnight by, uh, you know, by uh, Western philanthropy, uh, more or less. Um, and so, okay, so we're getting sort of the epilogue here. To this day, this experiment's still going on. Ludmila is, I think, 84 as of 2006 or 2017 when this book was written. Um, I actually don't know if she's still with us. I think I would have heard about it if she died, though. Um, but, uh, and so the really interesting thing, and she says this in the article that she wrote, is that one of her goals was to, at one point, get these animals registered as proper pets. Uh, 
and start being able to sell them. And as of 2010, you can go online right now. I have no idea how much it costs. It's probably exorbitant, but you can purchase one of these tame foxes and have it brought to the United States. And there's some here already and make them your house pet. And I'm told they behave more or less just like dogs. Um, so if you're at home listening to this right now, Google it real quick. Just, just Google tame Russian fox and you can see some of these animals and you can find a way to buy them. Um, I encourage all of our listeners to buy a fox. Buy a fox. <laughs> Sorry, we're, we, we're, we don't have a discount code for you. Yeah, we're <laughs> shilling for big fox. Like we're in the pocket of this Soviet fox experiment in Siberia. <laughs> our, our two sponsors are, are Soviet foxes and Raytheon. <laughs> Military contractors and Soviet foxes. <laughs> no, I don't see conflict of interest. Um, you know, the, yeah, so... You know, the Go main ahead. problem with this, though, is that um, it, it feels like, I guess, how do I want to say this? Uh, the main challenge with this is like I was listening, I was listening to you talk about these foxes. And I was like, all right, that'd be cool to have a fox as a pet. Um, but if they're just like dogs, I feel like it would you know, you'd lose interest in it pretty quick but i guess it's a conversation piece yeah. as long as you can still tell it's a fox right yeah you, it, you, you can google the pictures i mean you might think it's some sort of weird american eskimo or something like that I, I, i'm sure there's a dog breed that looks sort of like a fox that these i mean to be honest if i saw something that kind of looked like a fox but it was on a leash and someone was walking it i probably wouldn't be like oh that's one of those rare russian domesticated foxes <laughs> So here's that must be a, a serious question for you, Kevin, and yeah. you, too, you too, Pat. Would you rather have a fox, a Russian domesticated fox, or would you rather have the revival machine from Undying Mercenaries? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a fox, because screw you. I'm probably going to, I don't even really want the fox, but I'm probably going to have to say fox too. I know the revival machine is a really cool piece of tech. But as we've discussed before, the the philosophical implications of having your a new body printed out and your consciousness not even transferred, but just backed up to it. Yeah, I still maintain that every time you die, you've died for real. Yeah. And that's just, that's a stick clone of you with your memories. But uh, yeah, Patrick's thank you for just, working Patrick's in. just sitting there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad. I hope this is somebody's first episode, so they wonder what the hell we're talking about. Uh, um, all right. So, so that, what, what that is the story of the Russian Soviet Fox experiment. Uh, what would I rate it? Uh, um, so it's 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 never apples to oranges, right? Because it's not a novel. It doesn't it's not nearly as exciting as the novel is going to be because this is real life. Now there's cool stuff that happens into it. And I'd say if you are a student of history as I am, and you're kind of aware of what the world and more specifically what the Soviet Union was looking like during these time periods, during, you know, Stalinist Russia and, and thereafter, it's interesting to see how a real life story intersects with what you know to be the historical environment of the time and place. Um, and certainly, if you're interested in the subject, this is something you should read. So if that sounds like you, this is probably a solid eight. If that is not you, this is probably like a negative four. Um, if, yeah, it, if you're not that, then just take this podcast 
and be like, okay, right. this episode described everything I need to know about it. Well, you know what you could do? In addition, of course, listen to our podcast episode because that's the most informative and best way to do it. But just freaking go on YouTube and, and like Google, you know, or YouTube as it were, Russian Fox experiment. You could probably watch like a 15 minute video from PBS Science or something like that on it. And that way you'll get adorable little videos of adorable little fox puppies. You don't get that with listening or reading to the book. So <laughs> yeah, if, if you're not interested in the science behind it, it's going to be a hard sell. All right. Um, All right, that sounds good. And I think this is the first time that we've ever reviewed a book like this. Um, uh, well, I did that one by, um, what's his nuts? Uh, oh, Sapiens. Well, that was on the old podcast. No, it was like the first or second one I did by the, the Carlin, uh, the hardcore history guy. Oh, the, the end is yeah. always near. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, Dan Carlin. Yeah. Okay. Dan Carlin. I was. I want to say like John Carlin, but is that the who's the comedian? You're you're asking the complete wrong person. I thought maybe Pat would know George Carlin. George, yeah, George Carlin. He's... I was going to say George Carlin, but no, it's Dan Carlin. <laughs> George Carlin's been dead for a while now. <laughs> I don't think he's ever written a book. Maybe he has. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you one. for sharing this episode. Hey, if you like this episode and you found it informative, we would ask that you go on whatever app that you listen to your podcast to and give us a five-star rating so that other people that enjoy books might be able to find our podcast. Uh, we hope that you stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, we hope that you're enjoying whatever you are reading. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. We hope that you found it enjoyable. If you have any books of your own that you feel like would be great for us to read and to review on the podcast, or if you have any comments about any of the books that we've reviewed, please email us at booksandbeerreview at gmail.com, or you can visit our website to listen to more episodes of different books that we've reviewed at booksandbeerreview.podbean.com. Until next time, happy reading.